Welcome to another episode of Build Up One Another. I'm your host, Karen Temple. This is where I interview accomplished men and women who know that to go far, you go with one another. My guests share practical and unexpected ways in which we nurture our allies and navigate our adversaries. Join us as we unpack the stories behind our key relationships and how these have impacted where we've gone and, more importantly, who we become. Today, I'm delighted to welcome David Moore. David is a retired senior army officer who served 25 years in the Canadian Armed Forces. He is also the founder of Change Drivers Inc. and is the creative mind behind the Change Driver program. For over 40 years, David has been a real agent of strategic and operational change. He's known as the go-to guy for a variety of very challenging positions leading complex teams through his principle-based negotiation and relationship management skills. He's widely recognized for his out-of-box thinking in developing strategies, methods, and action plans that help clients realize enduring business outcomes, impacts, and benefits. Not only has he consulted private and public businesses through enterprise business architecture and business service transformations, David was instrumental in negotiating peace amongst warring factions in the former Yugoslavia. Talk about nurturing allies and navigating adversaries. So let's join our conversation. David's just been recounting being aboard the Diamond Princess as it was stranded in Yokohama amid the COVID-19 pandemic as it began to spread around the world. That's right, you heard me correctly. After serving 25 years, David had the unfortunate luck of being on the Diamond Princess. That's sort of what I what I came to the realization I came to sitting quietly, uh, you know, in my room for a month, essentially, right? And not doing, I didn't have much motivation to do anything else but just think about things because you never knew when the knock was going to come at the door and they were going to come back with the bad news mm-hmm. that you've got COVID and you're going to be taken either off the ship or you're going to be shipped out to a hospital in Canada. Right. So mm-hmm. you never knew. So I never really tried to do anything because I wasn't quite sure when the knock would happen, you know, yeah. and you would hear talking outside the door in the hallway and you get very twitchy, you know, Heather and I would stop talking and look at each other, whether That's they're coming from us. Right. You know, so these are moments in yeah. life where it gives us, good reason to pause and to reflect on that purpose statement. You mentioned government the other just a moment ago. And when I think of government, government is public service. And I often harp on that. And I harp on those two words, public, you're there to help the people, country, men and women. Mm -hmm. And it's service, which means you're supposed to, it's not about you, it's about the greater good. And, and David, one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled to have you on here is because you've been with the Canadian Armed Forces for over 25 years. And mm-hmm. as somebody who has signed on the dotted line to give the ultimate act of sacrifice to be, be aware when you're signing that, yes, you could be sent somewhere in the world representing Canada and what we believe in, and you may very well die. That's service. And so maybe I just want to begin there with you, um, because I'm, I'm really curious. You've spent 25 years in the Canadian Armed Forces. You've built a career there. What prompted you to join the military? And tell us a little bit about what your experiences were there and how that shaped your character. My path to the military started when I was in middle school, when um I organized a bit of an insurrection at the middle school in my hometown. And for that, uh, I was uh, suspended for uh, two weeks from school. And uh, the insurrection had to do with a certain phys ed teacher who was, um, who uh, we had sort of noticed was sticking his nose in and let's just say showing uh, much too much attention to the uh, girls' change room. Oh, okay. So I organized a bit of an insurrection, uh, and for which I was uh, in that regard, and I was suspended from school for two weeks. Now, full disclosure, they dealt with that issue, the school board. Yeah. Um, ha- however, uh, you, you know, they had to deal with me because I was insurrecting the other students in middle school. So I was punted for two weeks. So when I came back, you know, just, I was punted 
in the early spring and I came back just before uh, the year ended, right? So yes. I went in with my teacher and my, um, my uh, print, the principal of the middle school uh, into his office uh, and I was sat down and the principal said to me, words to the effect, Mr. Moore, you have a lot of misdirected leadership ability. Mm. And he said, uh, if you continue to use that ability in a similar manner, you will find that you will be generating the same result every time. However, were you to find a way to be able to channel your leadership capabilities in a more positive direction, you may go somewhere someday, son. Mm. So that's what I got from him. And so I went into high school. And when I get into high school, uh, let's just say I was having tendencies to slide back into my old way of behavior. However, I was nominated by people who thought it was a joke. School, I was nominated as vice principal of students council and I won. <laughs> <laughs> Me and another guy who were seen as two reprobates, he was the president and I was the vice president. I can see uh, so, the lines being drawn up on the battlefield as we speak. Uh, you know what I mean? So here we were, so we were sitting in there and we were looking at each other in our middle teens, right? Wondering, okay, this kid is either an opportunity or a threat. So what are we gonna do with this? So we decided that we would man up and mature a bit. And uh, I think we had a successful tenure uh, for that. So that translated itself when I left uh, the military and I decided I was working in Ottawa. I wasn't giving any ability or any opportunity to exercise any type of leadership. One thing leads to another. And in my early 20s, um, I went into the recruiting center and because I wanted some excitement, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. So it's looking for a little excitement and uh, uh, main battle tanks looked like an exciting business opportunity. And the people at the recruiting center were quite uh, interested in the fact that I had been in these. I told them about, you know, they asked me, uh, have you got anything in your past you want to tell us about? And the only thing I could really tell them about any was being kicked out of school when I was in middle school for organizing an insurrection for a good cause, mind you, I yeah. thought at yeah. the time. However, um, you know, like that. So they looked at that and they saw that as a positive too. So that was my introduction to the Canadian forces. Um, however, one thing I will, I will say at the beginning is that I, when, I, when I first enrolled and when I went for the enrollment ceremony, right, um, back in the day, many, many years ago in the early 70s, you have to sign your contract, right? There's a whole bunch of documentation one has to read. However, uh, the, the woman who, who presided over the uh, the oath taking ceremony informed me that I was the only person that actually the cheat scene that actually read the contract. What it said to me was uh, it was a very sobering experience because I read it and at the very in the last sort of part of the document, it said that essentially to sum it up is that you are in, entering into an unlimited liability contract with Canada, and that any point during that contract you you will be sent into you could be sent into harm's way and which may result in the loss of your life and those of anybody else who's uh, with you right so i remember looking at that and reading that and that sort of that's sat me up in my chair and made me take notice of the of the um seriousness of the moment right you know and i think that sort of shaped everything that I did because I, uh, what it was, was I was going through training to become an officer, which meant that I would be responsible for leading troops into heart, taking, excuse me, troops into harm's way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, possibly, which I did uh, later on in my career as a, as a Lieutenant Colonel commanding a battle group in the former Republic of, of Yugoslavia. And uh, so what it, what it did is it focused me on on my responsibilities right and i and I, I came to the conclusion that there were two dimensions to that unlimited liability contract i was responsible for my own actions right mm -hmm. and i was going to be accountable for everybody else's actions so i it's not passing the buck like we see you know you know political leaders uh, you know of various stripes point fingers in directions at everybody you can't do that you when you accept the mantle you accept the that you are personally responsible 
for your own personal weapon and your equipment and things that are yours, right? That belong to you. And then you're accountable for everybody else, right? So that in itself, when you, uh, when you adopt that type of approach of responsibility and accountability, it shapes everything that you do from that moment forward is that you must, because you are responsible, you must demonstrate that you are a responsible person. So it's how you personally conduct yourself, how you act in, in every situation. Uh, words are very important because people are listening to hanging on every word, especially when you're giving orders, which may result in somebody losing their life. They're very attentive when you're giving an orders group to people and somebody could die. And that, in fact, happened on several occasions, you know, to me as a commanding officer where troops were killed in operations. Right. So it's that responsibility and accountability. There's that responsibility that we take on as an individual and then how we are accountable to the people we're leading, as well as to the people who are in turn um, entrusting us to be able to accomplish a mission, for example. Yes. Yeah, you have individual responsibility, you have upward accountability, lateral accountability, and downward accountability, right, on those three levels, right? So when you do that, the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, you must act always in the best interests of your troops first, your peers second, and then those above you, like the... As sad, sad as sorry as it might or sad as it might sound for political leaders, they were the third consideration for me when I was on operations. I was firstly responsible, you know, to make sure whatever I was doing was in the best interests of the men and women who who Canada had entrusted under my command, to me under my command, and then to everybody else who was on the same level that I was, my peer group, if you wish, to be, they, they could trust me, trust, right? Talk about, you know, I recently I read a bar, I saw a, um, a synopsis on a book called The Attention Economy, right? It's about people's attention because everyone is scattered these days. Well, I, I believe it's more, it's not really attention, it's trust. Mm -hmm. It's trust economy. It's whether you are a trust, people trust you, whether, you know, you are a trustworthy military commander, people can trust that you're going to do what you're going to say. And, and that applies just as much for those that you serve with as those that you serve against. I mean, I had to ensure that in, in Yugoslavia, that the Serbs, Muslims, and the Croats trusted that I would do what I said I was going to do, including bombing them if required. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And calling it an airstrike that when that they could take it to the bank, they could trust that what I was going, I said, what I said I was going to do, I was going to actually do. Right. So there's a, their credibility comes into that. And, 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 but trust is the overriding factor. And if your troops do not trust you, they will not perform properly. And they won't, they won't, if they have a trust, they're not going to be looking over their shoulder to wonder what's going on. They will trust that you're going to be doing all of the right things and, and, and taking all of the right decisions and actions to ensure that their best interests are looked after, right? Because they're prepared to, to put their lives on the line, right? Yeah. And that your, that your peer group trusts that when you say something to another battle group commander, you know, a British or a Spanish or a Norwegian or a Brit battle group commander that was in the same operational theater, that they could count that you that the Canadians were going to come through as the commander of the Canadians said they would, right? And then there's the upward trust that the the uh, senior leadership above you, whether that's political or military, right? Because uh, uh, military action is politics by other means, yeah. right? That's if we von Clausewitz. It's when you cannot resolve it politically, you send in the armed forces to sort to sort it out. And then once that has been sorted out, then the politicians will get back together and they will try to bring a political uh, resolution to the matter, right? Right. Can you can you describe an example where you had the vertical and horizontal um, um, accountability, responsibility, and trust, and where it didn't all just lined up nice and pretty as we'd hope it would. You mentioned, for example, the order in which you would ensure that you had trust and ownership and accountability. 
Yeah. Um, well, for example, we received, uh, I can't remember the date exactly, but it would be in 1994, it would have been in the spring of 94, uh, late winter, early spring. We received a letter uh, from the United Nations, the, uh, the Secretary General Kofi Annan, I, there was a letter that I received that was sent through the uh, food chain um, uh, that was that stated that uh, unless the uh, forthcoming negotiations between these, the, the Muslims and the Croats in central Bosnia, which I was responsible to oversee, in a peace, the peace negotiations, unless they were successfully concluded, uh, their likelihood that there would be a uh, lar large-scale combat would return to the area. Is that the, unless we were able to get um, the Serbs and, or correction, the Muslims and the Croats to come to the table and to agree to a ceasefire in central Bosnia, that uh, that the that things would slip backwards and and it would go downhill very quickly, right? So, it was so the folks at the UN who were trying to negotiate the peace, or were you responsible with the other military commanders for negotiating the peace? I was responsible. I was the uh, go-to guy in central Bosnia for the uh, negotiate the, the ceasefire negotiations between the uh, Muslims and the Croats in Bosnia in our area because we were one of very few uh, military forces um, in Bosnia that actually uh, did business with all three warring factions. Some, some of the units only did business with the Croats, some did business with Croats and the Muslims, some did business with the Serbs and the Croats, okay? You know, I mean, we had, I had daily interactions with all three warring factions, right? So this was seen as the linchpin of the of what became uh, down the road. It was called the Dayton Accords. That's when, if you recall, in Dayton, Ohio, they flew Milosevic and, and they said Begovic and Bill Clinton was there and they signed the Dayton Accords on the tarmac in Dayton. But the preliminary activity was the ceasefire negotiations led by our battle group uh, in Bosnia, in central Bosnia. Okay, that so was the you, you had business with all three groups. That business was keeping them from fighting with each other and keeping the the, the boundaries separated. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, separating. We, well, at one, well, at this point, they were still fighting, uh, openly fighting. I remember I used to go up at night sometimes and sit up on the roof of our building and watch the... Uh, Watch the town. This, the town's burning. You could see the, the 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 burning reflecting off the clouds and tracer fire off in the distance and mortar, you know, artillery fire. And so they were still fighting openly at that time. So what it was was we were trying to bring peace. This whole thing about peace, peacekeeping uh, operations and things. Uh, this was a period when we were going from what would be the classical United Nations peacekeeping operations through to what would became peacemaking, <laughs> making the peace. And then what it became later on is, uh, you know, uh, with Canadian forces deployed into Afghanistan into, into uh, textbook combat operations, right? So we were in that transition period. Canadians were used to seeing Canadian peacekeepers out keeping peace well. There wasn't much peace to keep when we arrived on the ground and the model that we had to, we had to adapt our model very quickly because we had prepared for peacekeeping. Right. Operation, classic peacekeeping. But while we were preparing, we were watching the news, CNN <laughs> and BBC World News. And we were watching the news and watching what was going on. And we were all standing around looking at each other, myself and my subordinate commanders. And we were looking at each other going, well, it doesn't look like there's much peace to keep. Right. So right? here's a classic example where from the above, you're saying, hey, you're going on this peacekeeping mission. You're, you're there to keep the, keep the peace. You land there, and there's no peace happening. In fact, there's active combat between these, between these fractionist groups. And in order for you to do your business, to do your mission, it then meant moving into a different mode, not keeping peace, but actually trying to make peace and possibly even getting involved in combat so that 
the other parties knew that you were serious, that when you said, hey, we're here to make peace, we're gonna make this peace happen, that they actually respected the power that you brought behind your words and your actions. Yeah, so it goes back to the respect and trust, right? They trusted that when we said we would do something, uh, whether that was to call, you know, whether that was to whatever, along a, a very wide spectrum of operations, everything from pretty please, will you please move back to, uh, you know, if you do not move back, we're going to call in an airstrike on your positions and at five o'clock tonight, right. you know, those types of situations and, and that they would trust that that was actually going to happen, right? You right. know, so, um, yeah, so I got a bit, I'm sorry, I got a bit off the, uh, off the, I'm sorry if I went off on a tangent. No, on no, it's all good. Building on that, I wanted to go back. So at that point, when you got there and you realized this is not peacekeeping, did you have to go back up the chain in order to get the okay to, were you having to, to just make decisions on the ground that, hey, in the best interest of my, my troops and um, the other battalions in the area, we're going to be moving into doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah, uh, one of the first things we did is uh, the the what they call the ROE ROE rules of engagement. The rules of engagement were peacekeeping rules of engagement, where you you know you don't shoot at people unless you know to a situation where you essentially have to take casualties before you can return fire. That's very simplistic, but that's what the rules were. Essentially, if you take casualties, you can return fire. You can't do any what you would uh, in a in a in a combat operation. If you come up to somewhere and there's a building and you suspect somebody might be in the building, you can fire a burst into that building. <laughs> you know what I mean to try to shake things up to draw their attention, right? To see what you draw, but you couldn't do that in in a peacekeeping type of situation. So one of the first things we had to do was to get back. It primarily up the Canadian chain of command because there's little, I have little or no influence as a, a battle group commander over the United Nations headquarters, right? Okay. Um, as long as everything is going well, they don't pay much attention to you. It's the military chain of command that you're involving in, right? So, so we had to go back up the Canadian chain of command and the UN chain of, through the you know Canadian to the to say that these these rules of engagement are a little too restrictive given what's happening to us. We're being in, we're having our convoys fired at, right? We you know and. And they're shooting at us. They're shooting over our head, you know. And then it gradually escalates. You know, it was they, they test your metal, right? They get they try to see what type of reaction they're going to get out of you. So we got to a point where we had to start returning fire. And when we did start returning fire, uh, the reaction back home in Canada was, you know, was was. Uh, you know, politically was, whoa, what's going on here? Canadian soldiers are, you know, Canadian soldiers who are peacekeepers and supposed to be, you know, you know, good Canadians, you know, low key Canadians, but we were actually engaging in gunfights, right? So, um, so that was a bit of a shock, I think, politically, because um, the, the image that was portrayed during the workup, as I told you, we're training for a peacekeeping operation. We're watching the television, looking at the images that are good. It doesn't look like there's a lot of peace to keep. So, however, the, the political masters at the time, for them, it was still a peacekeeping operation. So they had to make the mental, the intellectual shift from peacekeeping to peace support, to peace, you know, to peacemaking type situation. So it wasn't just we were we were um, uh, buttonholed into one type of operational conduct, if you wish, which was going to be peace peacekeeping. You know, we were going to have to, there was going to be a spectrum. One day we might be peacekeeping, the next day we might be peacemaking, the next day we might be peace support. But however, what it was always about was, so you know, selection and maintenance of the aim. What was the aim, the outcome, if you wish, that we were trying to achieve, right? So as long as, in my mind, it was okay to, to, to be a peacekeeper, a peace supporter, and a peacemaker, as long as whatever that was, was in, in, in aid of achieving the desired outcome, which right. was to be able to uh, bring about the cessation of hostilities in central Bosnia and bring some uh, 
uh, normalcy back to the lives of the people who had up until that point been fighting for a couple of years. Yeah, and that just brings yeah. back and under those critical um, circumstances, just how important having that aim or that mission very clear in everybody's mind so that right. we're not, you're not um, constrained or constricted by the rules of engagement such that you're not going to actually get to where you need to go um, in order to accomplish your mission. Right. And we did experience difficulties across, uh, you know, um, sometimes we were, we were chastised because, uh, you know, one day you fought, you, 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 your troops uh, shoot back, you get chastised for it by, from someone in the United Nations or in the Canadian political sphere. And the next day you don't shoot back when something happens and they ask why, people ask why you didn't shoot back. Yeah, it goes back to being on that front line and actually feeling what the temperature of the situation is on a given day, seeing whether or not you're able to, um, to try one tactic versus another and having that ability um, to be able to make some of those calls on the ground so that you're able to affect the outcome that you're looking to because nobody else really knows what it's like on the ground except you and your troops. Right. So, you know, for me, uh, you know, there's, there's, we called there, you know, uh, I'm sort of a principles purpose based guy, right? I always have been learned very early on in my time in the military that if you are purposeful, which is aim, mission, call it whatever you want, uh, one person's mission is another person's outcome, <laughs> depending on where you are on the food chain, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's that type of thing. So I don't get caught up in aim, mission, perfect, whatever. It's just what it is, is you have an overarching object goal that you want to achieve and that everything that you do is in service of that, exactly. right? Everything that's done. And so, you know, I would, I would, you know, routinely I would go through the principles of war, the 10 principles of war that Canadian armed forces and most NATO countries subscribe to. So as I was going through, I would roll those through in my head and make sure that we weren't violating any of those principles of armed, armed, uh, you know, conflict resolution, if you wish, you know, armed forces or military operations. And then at the very end, I would ask myself only Am I acting in the best interests of my men and women? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Is everything that I'm doing, all of the preparations that we've made, everything that we're doing, has it been in the best interest? I mean, I have no control over who lives and dies. That's, you have no control over that. What you do have control over is everything, is every action that you take. So okay. that's the responsibility, act responsibility, Act responsibly, sorry, and make sure that you are uh, you are acting in the best interests of those who you serve. And as the commanding officer, I serve the men and women under my command. And one of the things that I heard from your your story about how you got into the military there was that opportunity to to lead and do the right thing. And I think that that's so often missing because I think nowadays people are looking for being able to change the world, solve climate change, resolve all these big, huge issues. And they're important issues without doubt, but leadership begins with us as individuals and what is my character and what are my actions and how is that leading me? Let's, yep. let's try to resolve what's in our immediate sphere of influence before we go trying to fix everything else up. And um, so question for you. you, when you got into military, did you go into officer, officer training right away or yes. did you go? Okay. And so how did they assess you for officer training versus the normal route in, I'm going to call it boot camp? There's officer uh, training and then there's non-officer training. However, the basic training that you get as an officer candidate and as a private soldier, what you're looking to achieve uh, at both in both of those specific areas, you know, those cohorts, mm -hmm. you know, officers and training soldiers and training, what you want is the same, the same result. Those are the installation of the basic, basic fundamental, the foundational skills, uh, values, things like that. What they're looking for, you know, they're looking, whether you're an officer or a non-officer, what you're looking for is leadership, behavior, and results. That's mm -hmm. it. 
you're looking for people that, you know, if you're an officer, you're supposed to lead. So you're supposed to have some inherent leadership ability that can be developed. And there are people uh, who go in as non-officers and they decide that to do so because for a variety of reasons, uh, some of it may have to do with the level of education or whatever. And uh, however, the basic fundamental underpinnings are the same. You're looking to see the officers, you must demonstrate leadership ability. In the non-officers, you wanna have them demonstrate leadership potential so that they can move beyond the rank of private and go to corporal, master corporal and sergeant, warrant officer, master warrant officer, chief warrant. You know what I'm saying? Right. So they can move up to thing like that and they can be ultimately selected to go to officer training. I, when I was commanding my, uh, my unit, uh, there were many uh, non-officers that, you know, uh, many, you know, that were recommended that were sent on for officer training or were commissioned from the ranks as officers, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, however, at a fundamental basic training, everybody, you're looking, you're looking for the same things. What, what really surprised you about going from, say, military and the training that you received there and the way the military operated to moving into more of the civilian world and consulting to companies? Uh, well, the military is a merit-based promotion machine. So it's based on, on merit, uh, both in the officer and the non-officer ranks. Okay. So when, when I left the military, or when I left the military, go into the, into the private sector, what I noticed immediately was I was going to have to be a self-starting. I was already a self-starting type of guy, but I was going to be a self-learning type of guy because there were, yeah, you know, the consulting companies through which I was contracting at the time, they, they need, they wanted me to have all of the qualifications uh, necessary to satisfy the needs of their clients, but they weren't going to help me with that. That was an individual responsibility, right? When I was in uniform, uh, the, the educational system of the Canadian forces, the education and training system was geared to provide me with all of the necessary knowledge, skills, experience, and expertise. I would be able to compete in a meritocracy with other people, men and women for select, you know, selected positions. So, you know, that included everything from language capability, you know, bilingualism all the way through to various training. Now we were talking about training in the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, irrespective, you know, irrespective of, uh, of your um, branch, everybody gets the same basic officer training, mm. everybody. And in the non-officer ranks, everybody, irrespective of whether they're gonna go to the Navy, the Army, or the Air Force, they get, the same basic training together, okay? So they have a foundational piece that is common to everybody. The subjects, there may be a few, there's a few subjects, you know, in the officer training that aren't in the non-officer training, but generally speaking, the overall outcome one wishes to achieve, right? The result is that you wanna have a cohesive force. So all of the, you know, everybody is operating from the same basic page together. And then after they complete the basic training, I was sent off to do my uh, army. I headed off into the army's chain, training and education chain. It was sent to the combat training center in Gagetown, New Brunswick, whereupon I went through phase two, three, and four armored officer training. And the, and the infantry guys went to the infantry school through phase two, three, and four infantry. And the artillery guy, you get where I'm going? And in wow. the Air Force, the Air Force, they went to whatever phase two, three, and four, whatever. Okay, and, air. And what strikes me, David, with um, the military, I mean, in military, stakes are very high. You're dealing with life and death scenarios. And so the having a, a strong hierarchical structure whereby everybody knows their role and responsibility at the different levels and you're able to go into the field and accomplish your mission is is key it's it's absolutely critical and so it's trained to perform because there there is no as you said before failure is not an option and it strikes me and i'm wondering if you could comment on this that when you left the military world and you started consulting for um, the civil in civilian life and consulting for companies, both private and public sector companies, the contrast that I see in, in corporations is that 
corporations are not training people at different levels to the extent that is perhaps needed for, for those companies to be successful. And I realize that the stakes are not life and death, but it still is, they're still trying to compete. And I'm wondering whether or not when you started consulting to these companies, whether you saw um, that juxtaposition. Yeah, the first thing was, is uh, when, I, uh, when I arrived, when I left the military and then transitioned over to the consulting world and my first few consulting gigs, if I can use that for the gig economy, right? I was in the gig economy for 18 years. Somewhat struck that teamwork was a really novel new concept in, night, in uh, the year 2000 okay. when I went into the, um, you know, it was out there. It was one of those things, you know, team building sessions and, and team this and team that. It's all good. You know, I'm a team guy. I was in the team thing, you know, very early in my life, right? You know, with the mm -hmm. military, you know, the military, I call the, the uh, armed, com uh, armed conflict or military, the, the application of military force is, is, a, is the oldest uh, contact sport, okay, uh, on the earth, right? So mm -hmm. um, I've always observed, you know, you know, if, when I first arrived in the, in the consulting market, and was peddling my skills and expertise, et cetera. I was always struck at how much time was devoted to uh, trying to learn what teamwork was all about, right? So what I deduced from that was, I have an advanced course in teamwork and team, getting team grouping, putting people together, the right people at the right place, do the right thing, the right time, all that stuff. You sure do. So, so I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see this as the glass half full, not half empty. Mm -hmm. You know, I had the benefit of my 25 years in the military that a lot of people that I worked for didn't. They didn't experience the type of things that I did. I said I was lucky um, to have experienced the things that I did because they shaped me and I've tried to pass on to the best of my ability some of these values uh, to my son and uh, my grandkids. So you know, and, and uh, I'm writing a book that we can talk about later uh, that is part of my legacy to them uh, in this particular regard, right? So that was the, the first thing I, um, that it struck me. And the other thing was, was it was the focus on uh, generating outputs or deliverables. Um, everybody, whether it was the consulting company that I was contacting through that were focused on quote billable hours unquote right, right. you know they're focused on the number of billable hours found it to be uh, a little a little difficult to be able to uh, to navigate that world of of uh, product or deliverable focus because my whole adult you know adult life had been spent to that point on outcomes impacts and benefits. That's what it was, right? Is that we were given a, you know, a, a mission to perform under the umbrella of whatever, you know, over the course of my life, I was given many missions to perform. And those missions were in, always in aid of a larger, bigger outcome. Right. Always, mm -hmm. okay? Now, what I did in the former Republic of Yugoslavia, that was at the strategic international level. Mm -hmm. okay. I did things back home in Canada that were at the national level, domestic level, but this, you know, these were things at the, the, the highest levels of diplomacy, international mm -hmm. diplomacy, right? So, so you've got, I had that sort of background of outcome impact benefit orientation. So again, when I looked at it, said, okay, this is an opportunity. Uh, I'm going to have to talk to these folks in terms that they can understand. I, if I start talking to them in uh, terms that, you know, that would be understood by the members of an armored battle group in contact with the Taliban, mm -hmm. that would be a little different to get people to understand what the hell is going on, okay? So I had to do, you know, put some water in my wine and come up with some terminology which resonated with them uh, and it ultimately led to a discussion around outcomes, impacts and benefits. Mm -hmm. And uh, to that point on, on many uh, occasions when I would finally conclude uh, one of my gigs as part of the gig economy, 
um, I would go in to see whoever I was working for, the DG or the director or whatever, and, and they would say to me, you know, David, um, we were not quite sure what you were doing, you know, everything that you were up to, you know, but uh, however, we really liked the results. And, uh, you know, you ought to keep doing that. And, and by the way, one day you might want to write it down. Right. So, so that sort of that happened and happened and that was said to me in, in different ways. Same dance, different song. Okay. People were saying the similar thing different ways over the years. So that led me to sit down and put pen to paper uh, on that. Right. Because the first thing was, was around an outcome impact benefits orientation and moving away from task management and pro, uh, uh, deliverable management and, and focused on projects instead of programs or initiative level things, understanding you know, portfolio management, a portfolio of projects to generate an outcome and things yeah. like that. So I had a lot of, I had a lot of experience and background doing that, uh, doing difficult things like that under very trying conditions. And so. it's incredible too, because the two words that really strike me there are outcomes and team. And when there's clarity around the mission, around that overarching outcome that you're striving towards, the team is able to get behind it and then across a hierarchy of a team at different levels within that team, each person realizes that they're not just a cog in a wheel, but they're actually an, an integral part of the team and each person has value and worth in their role and responsibility or their scope of mission that leads up into that overarching mission being accomplished. And I think that when we frame it in that perspective, and we know what that mission or that outcome that we're trying to aim for, you're able to bring a team around it and stay focused on what everybody is trying to achieve. I'll give you an instance. Although I was the battle group commander, the commanding officer of the battle group, right? Um, I, was at the, uh, I was at the mercy of the driver of my combat vehicle. Mm -hmm. Because in this case, he or she, because I had a couple of crews that used to go 12 on, 12 off, right? You know what I mean? While we were there. Yeah. So, you know, it was either uh, uh, she or he driving my uh, combat vehicle. So um, one time we were in an orders group. I was giving orders for an operation. And when, when, when I had given my orders to the battle group writ large, I then focused on the command element, the people that would be close to me during the operations, the the vehicles plus the, um, the, the control station, right? Call sign zero. Whenever you hear zero call you, you pucker up a bit, okay? Everybody when zero calls. So um, I remember uh, one time I was giving my orders and I was telling, you know, blah, blah, staying that this is how we we're gonna do the first maneuver. And I would go here and somebody else would go there and we would position ourselves and da, 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 da. And I told that I'm going to be I'm going to be taking a fire position in this location over here on this blah 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 blah. So I was showing it on the map, and my driver is actually sitting in the back and taking note of that. So after the 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 orders to the command element were complete, you then say, okay, so take five minutes, look at your notes, and then I'll take questions. So during that five minute period, the dry watch the driver come by, walk by behind me, go up to the map. I looked around. She at the time was looking at the map. Right, looking at the map where the you know where exactly where I pointed to was, sort of sat there, and I saw her the back of her head. She's shaking her head, okay, you know, shaking her head like, oh, what the hell is he gonna get us into? Now? Right. <laughs> okay. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at. It. So she walks back around behind and goes back down in the back, you know, behind the captains and the lieutenants and the sergeant majors and all that stuff. Takes stands in the back. She's standing in the back and I go around, I'm taking the questions and I get to her and she said, she says to, you know, uh, in French, we were talking French at the time, she says, sir, we, are, we won't be able to park in that position that you've indicated there because I was there the other day and the ground is very soft and we'll get bogged down and we don't want to get bogged down, do we, sir? <laughs> and I just looked at her and said, that sounds like a good plan to me, Corporal. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Like I'm the boss. I could have, I could have said, you know, slap myself on the forehead, you know, and, you know, and said, you know what I mean? Yeah, everybody, yeah, there's, there's value at every level. Every yes. level has, um, the operative, 
term for it is to come team. together is team. Yeah, yeah. And, and with that, there's there's um, there's also a level of um, humility and letting the ego play a positive role and not a necessarily a, a dominant role. Yeah, the, the objective, the overarching objective is to get back home at the end of the day alive. Yes. That's the overarching objective. It's for everybody who goes out the gate, everybody comes back. That's what it is. So when you're dealing with those types of situations, you know, we're having this discussion in a, you know, in a very sterile environment, notwithstanding the pandemic, you know, so to speak, but it's pretty sterile environment. When you're over there, and while you're giving the orders group, you can hear in the distance the sound of the artillery fire yeah. rumbling in the distance. And you know you're headed in that direction in a, in a few minutes. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's when you're working on that level, it, humility and uh, trust, right? Um, and, and the driver, uh, the young lady who was driving that day, we tell all our soldiers, sailors, air, air crew to ex exert leadership at every level. Absolutely. You know, and the operative term was, I am the crew commander of the combat vehicle. She was the driver. <laughs> so if I say, driver, go left, and the driver says, uh -uh, I'm not going that, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the driver will, will take a route so, you know, I learned over the years, uh, I learned over the years to be um, less directive when giving direction, particularly to a driver. You want to indicate a general direction you want to go, and you want to tell them what type of position. There are two positions you pull into with, a, with an armored vehicle. One's called turret down and one's called hull down. So you just indicate those two things, general direction and what's the, what's the position, the initial position you're going to... Uh, uh, adopt one is to observe and one is to open fire mm. okay so you tell them that so they can expect because they are forward in the vehicle and the gun barrels right over their head mm -hmm. you know what i mean so you want yeah. them to brace for when we start when the firing starts and so those are the types of things that you know you you, you want to communicate so it's 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 letting go you know i had um I remember um, the chief warrant officer, he's the senior non-commissioned officer uh, in the battle group. Uh, his name was Claude Houle, uh, our regimental Sergeant Major Houle. And Claude Houle, we were there for a few days uh, well, after we'd arrived on the ground in, uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And he came into my office and closed the door and he'd been around the block a few times, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, he came in and closed the door and he came over to me and he sat down and he just pulled up and he leaned forward, you know, so I leaned forward and looking at him, he said, okay, you have no control over who's going to live and who's going to die. Mm -hmm. What you got to do is make sure that every decision the command element takes is in the best interest of the soldiers Bear, you know, they understand that we're here to accomplish a mission and we're stepping into harm's way to do it. That they're counting on you every day to make sure that you've weighed all of the factors that come into play and you've given them every opportunity to properly prepare, to get ready, okay? So he said, to this point, kudos, sir. Great job. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We're here, we're on the ground, we're all... We're, you know, everything's good. Now we got it. That doesn't stop. The preparation has only begun. Mm -hmm. And that's, so we shook hands and that was it. And off we went, mm -hmm. you know, so that's the type of uh, letting go that you have to, you have to understand that, you know, even in the private sector and, you know, corporations, the CEOs, they can't, they have no control over who, who decides to leave the company and take their IP, you know what I mean? They just say things move on, they can't, they have no control over what their, what their, uh, you know, competitors are doing, mm -hmm. right? They can only, you know, they, they, what they find themselves a lot of times to be reactive. So what you want to do is you want to be proactive and not reactive. So in order to properly prepare our troops in Yugoslavia, we had to think ahead. We had, you know, begin with the end in mind. Right. Every time. 
intermediate ends, if I can use that term. There was the bigger end, and then there were all of the intermediate ends in between. And we had to think what they were and what were the implications of each one and, and how are we going to deal with it? And if we do this, then that might happen. And if that happens, what, what else could cascade from that? You yes. know, so we were constantly, constantly thinking like that. And that's all about the preparation side of the house. Okay. And so while there's this, this structure and this framework under which you're operating, within that there's overlaid a flexibility so that you can adapt to the various changes that are happening in real time and that people at an individual level are also empowered to do their job as they know best. So for example, that driver, if you're telling him or her to get to a certain position roughly and what what um, what you want to be prepared to do once you're there, then they know how to drive. They know how to drive better than anybody else there because they're a driver, right? That's their role better, responsibility. Better than me. Exactly. So by giving them that ability to say, okay, this is where I need to end up, you figure out how to get us there. You're allowing them to take that ownership and be able to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing the parallels between the military and what you were sharing in your consulting world with the companies, the company clients that you were working for, you mentioned you're doing a book and the book is Change Driver. And I would love for you to take a few moments to share what you can. I know that it's, you've written the book, you're about to publish it, but it hasn't yet launched. So would you share with us a little bit about what that book is about to the extent that you can? because I think that would be really valuable for people listening. Yeah, change your Well, it goes back to my earlier comments um, regarding my consulting career, you know, after I uh, retired from the military. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, many uh, gigs at a variety of departments and agencies, it became the common drumbeat that I was getting or common theme when I would leave to go off to another gig was people were saying, you know, that we, we really, we enjoyed that. We actually had fun doing that. You know, it was, uh, you pushed us, but uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a valuable, your approach is, 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 is uh, rock solid. And uh, you know, you ought to write it down. You know, have you ever considered writing it down? You know, well, thank you very much for the kind words. Really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, you're not the only one that's told me that. So as I got, came to the end of my consulting, you know, career sort of, I, I started, started, winding down in 2016, I thought about it, and uh, I wasn't a spring chicken anymore. And I was thinking of this actually from the perspective of military and non-military professional lives. I was, remember my last three jobs in the military, I was a, a combat unit commander, uh, director of National Defense Command Center, and the uh, chief of staff strategic planning for the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Forces. Wow. So the yeah. Big jobs, very interesting jobs, and they have some very unique skills and expertise attached to them, right? So at the end, I wanted maybe to, to leave something behind from professionally, you know, and to have it sort of as a legacy for my my my, my son and and his wife and my grandchildren, mm. my uh, two grandchildren and one in the oven there right now, right? <laughs> Congratulations. Um, yeah, thanks. So uh, for the small role that I played in the whole thing of my life, and I was always involved in a lot of change going on. There's a whole lot of change going on, and I got involved in some areas of change that were uh, interesting, you know, both at the, you know, net Canadian national level and at the international level. So... I decided to write it all down and created a program called Change Driver. And uh, however, the first thing we want, we said is what we'll do is we'll create a, a book, so a textbook, a workbook, and a practitioner's guide for change drivers. So we just wrote the textbook. It's just finished. My three, my uh, other two co-authors, Lucy Lagrassa and Donna Majesi, we've completed the book uh, actually yesterday. Donna and I did the last work second session. So it is done now. So the change driver, one of the things about the change driver course or that the impetus for me was what we wanted to do was we wanted fact and evidence-based approach, right? That cuts through all of the cognitive dis dissonance or distortion. You know what I mean? That's out there. When people are involved in very complex 
change initiatives, programs, and projects, things like that. They there's you know you get a, you get people at the I mean, have you've heard of the, the the terms you know there's the facts and then someone might have alternative facts. Well, there's no alternative facts. There's a set of facts and then there are opinions in related to those facts. Right. right? It's not the facts and then I have some alternative truths that are out there. Okay. So that's what it is. So the whole thing about the program, the program is a, uh, it, it is that, it's a program. It's not just a set of principles. It's not just a framework. It's not just a technique. It's not just a method. It is a program. It's an overarching set of principles that govern a framework for organizing how you're going to think and work and how you're going to make decisions in relation to how you're thinking and working. And then how you're going to go through the granular work act work activities that you're going to actually determine what needs to change in a variety of areas. In terms of change driver, it's the work seven elements. Mm -hmm. You're getting very granular and you're looking at risks associated with that granularity. And you're looking at all of the implications, the feedback from one from one element to another. So this is, this is what it is. It's essentially, this is not, you know, whether you're in the military or you're not, an outcome is an outcome. The outcomes in the military are just a little less forgiving than the ones in the non-military. So the, the principles are, you know, the principles of change driver. If you, if you ignore one of these, of the change driver principles, you're going to get bitten in the, in the backside. That's because we have actually the teeth marks on our posterior. <laughs> okay, so we we know that we can we're pretty much sure of a seventy-five to eighty percent solution. Yeah. If you start if you start ignoring them, you're going to fall, you know, uh, exponentially. You know, each time it's not incremental; it's exponential. <laughs> the, the the drop, right? Because of the because each each one of those principles feeds back on uh, the other principles and it also feeds back in the framework and the decision technique and all of the uh, method, uh, the elements of the methodology. So, yeah, you know what I mean? So it's an exponential thing. It's, uh, you know, somebody uh, smarter than me in mathematics could probably draw you a curve on that, right? But that's what it is. So it's, so it's not to, it's not to say, oh, you know, this is just military. No, it's not. No. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's what I learned as a young man and then when I was an older man and I got in the consulting racket, I took it in, and it's been recast in business, uh, private and private and public sector business terms. Yes. That's, I, I mean, I, I think ultimately we make things more complex than we need to. And it leads to an inability to um, separate and, and see the path, see a clear path forward. And when you are grounding a course on principles and there is a framework within which one can operate, it helps to delineate and disentangle um, what could be made complex, but actually you can bring it down to more simpler concepts that actually help you to navigate um, more challenging aspects of life. But I agree with you, an outcome is an outcome. From my experience, when we focus on the outcome, when there, when egos do get stirred up and humility goes by the wayside because people's personal interests come into play, for example, by pointing to that mission allows us to realign outside of who our own individual interest to what that team interest is and what that organizational interest is. And I have to say that it's hugely powerful. Um, I think that by codifying it and putting it into a book plus a workbook, I think is so valuable because as I say, that allows somebody to take their own life predicament and overlay those principles in a practical way. Cause it's not until we really implement until we practice, until we have the scenario in our own life that these principles really stick and become part of our operations. If you will, I want to thank you for your time lot of great a lot of great information a lot of great insights experiences i love the fact that you gave us so many practical examples and um also for you know as, as i've said before for your service to our country i hold a very special place in my heart for the men and women who 
do go into military, who serve the country, enabling us to have a life of peace and prosperity, and who are also willing and able to go to other parts of the world so that other people may also experience life. So thank you. Oh, thank you for the kind words. And to everyone, just remember, as, as, uh, as I speak, there are men and women above and below the water, on the ground and in the air, uh, doing our collective bidding uh, and representing us on the international, uh, international front. And in, in, in uh, recognition of them and in appreciation of them, wear your mask, wash your hands and get out of the way. And so with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Or as they say in the military, Roger, out. But wait, you say, I didn't ask David how he negotiated peace amongst two warring factions in the former Yugoslavia? That, my friends, will be in part two, which will be released shortly. But for those who cannot wait till then, you can find more about David Moore and Change Driver through the links below in the show notes. Also, please let us know what you thought of this episode by writing, reviewing, and sharing. So until next time, my friends, go and build up one another.